I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles back to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Does anybody remember that we've been studying the book of Galatians? We started Galatians Memorial Day weekend, but we've had a lot of little breaks along the way, so we haven't made it very far. Last week we had Donnie here, it was my vacation, and the week before that was a Gospel Roots message, and back in, family, uh, in July we had a Family Bible Week message that also kept us away from Galatians. So I wouldn't be surprised if everybody here felt a little lost and a little out of the flow of Galatians at this point. Does anybody remember why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians? There was trouble brewing. Paul was writing to these churches that he loved and he cared about in the region of Galatia, modern-day Turkey. Many of these churches he and Barnabas had founded on their missionary journeys. When you read the book of Acts, they visited these places that this letter was going to. They planted these churches. They cared about these people, but some bad guys with a false gospel had infiltrated these churches and cast doubt on Paul and Paul's gospel and began convincing the Galatians to believe their alternative gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Coming back to you, what Galatians is about? That's trouble. So Paul had picked up his pen and wrote what one commentator called a tornado warning of a letter. Trouble. Danger. Stop. Pay attention. Paul wrote to try to stop them from doing something very foolish and damnable. Abandoning the truth of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. This chapter began with those words, Oh, foolish Galatians. Paul was so concerned for these people that they would leave the truth of the gospel and end up imperiled in spiritual danger. What was the error of the false gospel? What did the false teachers want the Galatians to put their faith in? It was the Mosaic law, wasn't it? They didn't have a problem with Jesus Christ putting your faith in Him. They agreed that Jesus was the Messiah. But these folks were saying, you might start that way, putting your faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. Faith in Jesus is not enough. You also have to begin obeying the law and doing the works of the law. You might get right with God by faith in Jesus, but you stay right with God by doing the works of the law. Is that the gospel? Is that how you get right with God? Is that how you stay right with God? Is that how justification works? That's what Paul asked them in verse 3 of this chapter. He said, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Paul has is writing this letter to convince the Galatians once again of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not through the law. 
Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith and faith alone. Last time Paul brought up this person of Abraham. Do you remember that? Back in July, you probably don't. Was Abraham famous for observing the law or for his faith? For his faith. The law had not even been given when Abraham was already famous for his faith. Well, that's what Paul is going to talk about today in the last half of this chapter, verses 15 through 29. There's a lot here in this section, and it gets kind of complicated. In fact, I'd say it gets really complicated. There are a number of things here I just don't understand or can't explain very well. But just keep this in mind as we go through it. What Paul is trying to do through all of this deep history and all this deep theology is to convince the Galatians to not add law-keeping as the basis for their justification before God. Not circumcision, not Sabbath-keeping, not the kosher diet, not even the Ten Commandments. Do not add works of the law as the basis for your justification. That's a false gospel, and it is a damnable gospel because it sets aside the grace of God and basically says that Jesus died for nothing. Everything we're going to read this week and next time and probably the time after that has the same goal of stopping the Galatians in their tracks to keep them from going off this cliff. To keep them from making that fatal wrong gospel mistake. But you can see why they might, can't you? I mean, the law, the law of Moses was a big important thing for the Jews, wasn't it? And rightfully so. God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. Remember that? The mountain on fire? The angels, the trumpets, the the sound, the, the holiness, the Ten Commandments, the covenant that came with it? That's one great big Harry deal. God gave them the law of Mount Sinai. It wasn't something that Moses made up. We call it the law of Moses. Because Moses was the leader at the time. He, he was the mediator of this law covenant. But the law was from God. The law was big and important to the Jews. So you can see why they might have thought it was all important. And important enough to impose on new Gentile, non-Jew Believers. So Paul has to explain to them why the law should not take the place that they are tempted to assign it. And how's he going to do that? How would you you do that? If it was your job to say why the law was not as important as everybody thought it was, how would you do it? Well, Paul reaches back for something bigger. Something bigger than the law and more permanent than the law than the law. And that's the promise. What is bigger and more fundamental than the law of Moses? The promises of God given to Abraham. Let's dig in here and see what Paul has to say. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. And listen especially for two things as I read it. One, what he says about the law and what it can and can't do. And two, For what he says about what the promise means for us now. 
especially these last four verses, which are just glorious. Ready? Let's dive in. Galatians 3.15 Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no, longer, it no longer depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's our title. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Would you pray with me? Lord, that is glorious stuff. You could just tell. Paul is so passionate about it and he is, he's explaining it so intricately. And yet it's hard for us to follow. I pray, Father, you would grant us grace to follow the argument here that Paul is making and to get to his conclusion like he does. Teach us, Lord. Show us these things. Help us to understand how it applies to our life today because we know it does. Help us to heed the warning and to be encouraged by the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody remember 2003? I know that was a long time ago. 2003 seems like a long time to me. That was the year my son Peter was born. Okay, uh, Isaac was still just a, an idea uh, of God's yet to come. 2003 was also the year that I preached here through the book of Genesis. Anybody remember Genesis here at Lance Free Church? Okay, a couple of you do. Good. That was the year that we met this person, Abraham, in the Bible. We called him the best supporting actor in the book of Genesis. Some of you will remember that. 
Father Abraham. And we learned back in 2003 that God had made certain promises to Father Abraham. Do you remember what those were? When we were preaching through Genesis, there used to be a pop quiz every Sunday. I'd say, class, there's a pop quiz. What are the three main promises of the Abrahamic covenant? Yell them out. Offspring. Land. Blessing. That's right. Very good class. You remember. 14 years later. Good. Back in 2003, we learned that our God is a promise-making God. And we also learned that He is a promise-keeping God. We learned God always keeps His promises. I don't know how many times we've said that then and we've seen that through the years. Since 2003, in the preaching ministry, we've trekked our way through a lot of the rest of the story. You may have figured out that there's a, there's a method to my madness. When we went through Exodus, when we went through Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, last year, the books of Kings. And one of the key truths that we've seen, and again and again as we've trekked through the Old Testament story, is that God is keeping... These promises He made to Father Abraham. Offspring, land, and blessing. Do you see how that's the big story of the Old Testament? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in the last half of Galatians 3. In verse 14, he said that Jesus, by dying on the cross, redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to Gentiles like the Galatians, and like us here in this room, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So the question there, though, is how does all of that relate to the law? Right? That's the question. So Paul answers it. Look at verse 15. Brothers, Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. He means in the case of the Abrahamic covenant. He says if two people make a binding agreement with one another and agree on all the terms, can somebody else or something else come along and break up that agreement? Change it for the two parties? No, not legally. Or take the example of a last will and testament. Because the word here for covenant could also be used for a will. If I die, and my will leaves all of my money, both of my dollars, to Heather Joy, can the executor of my will, let's let's say my brother is the executor of my will, can can my brother come out and say, when he executes that will, "Eh, I don't like this idea. I don't think Heather should get those $2. I think they should go to the Society of Coconut and Pineapple Lovers. Which he knows would be a terrible thing as far as where my money ought to go. Can can my brother do that as executor of the will? Not legally. How about God then? Can God say, I just don't feel like it anymore. I don't feel like keeping these promises I've made to Abraham. Frankly, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of Abraham and his seed. I'm tired of coming through with offspring and land and blessing to that guy and his dumb children. I'll just ignore those promises. 
Can God do that? Not and stay God. God is faithful. God always keeps His promises. Now, to whom did He make these promises? To whom need He be faithful? Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Greek word, sperma, offspring. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, this is tricky. I'm not sure I understand it completely. Because seed, both in English and in Greek, can be a collective singular, and often is. In fact, Paul is going to use it like that in just a few verses. But he's got a point he wants to make. These promises were made to Abraham a lot longer back than 2003. Right? We might have learned about it in 2003, but they were made about 3,000 years ago. Okay? He made these promises to Abraham, and they were most deeply, most fully, most ultimately made to Abraham's one seed, his chief offspring, the God-man Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God find their fullest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God always keeps His promises in Jesus, and catch this, to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? But again, what does this have to do with the law? Where does the law come into this story? Answer, much later. And the law doesn't change anything in the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 17. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God. And thus, do away with the promise. He says, oh yes, the law is big. Yes, but it wasn't that big. The promise is what's big. And the promise doesn't change. Verse 18. For if the inheritance that is receiving these promises depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Is is this clear? The law was never the point, he's saying. The law was never the big story. The law didn't fundamentally change the big story. It just got added to the story. It's a little story within the big story. It's It's like on your computer. When you have your computer on and you have a window open, and then you decide you want to open another window, right? Does that stop the other? If you didn't close the first window, is the, is the program or the app or whatever still working in the background? It is, right? That's what it's like, right? The first app is the promise. The second app is the law. The promise is still at work. You know what? It'd probably even be better to say it's the operating system, right? If you have your operating system on, and then you open an app, does that shut down the operating system? It shouldn't, right? (laughs) It it might, but that would say there's something wrong here, right? So the, the law, the promise is the operating system. The law was just an app that was open for a time. 
The Mosaic Law was another temporary covenant set up to run for a time during the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Now that's complicated too. That's hard to follow. I'm not sure I get it all or can explain even what I understand very well. But notice certain things that are very clear. The law had a good purpose, but it was temporary. Did you hear that in the verse? Until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. And who's that? That's Jesus. The law, in other words, had an expiration date. If you pulled the law out of the fridge and you smelled it to see if it was still good, do I eat this law? You look for the expiration date on the bottom, and what did it say? Use only as a law covenant until the seed has come. And if the seed has come, should you use that as your law covenant? No. Why would you? Pour that down the drain, right? Why would you, when you have a better covenant that's being enacted right before your very eyes that is older and bigger? Paul says it's better because it's older and because it's more direct. The law, verse 19, was put into effect through angels by a mediator. I think that's Moses. But the Abrahamic covenant was direct from God to Abraham and to his seed. I think that's what he means by verse 20. He might be pointing out that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. The Mosaic covenant has lots of conditions to it, right? Do this and this will happen. We saw that again. Do this and this will happen. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed, right? But the Abrahamic covenant was very one-sided, wasn't it? Remember that? Trivia question for you. What was Abraham doing when God made his big promises to Abraham? What was he doing? Somebody said it. He was sleeping. He was, he was taking a nap. Right? He was not active. Remember, remember when uh, God had Abraham divide up the, car- the carcasses? Right? And he set one, one side here, one side there. To symbolize, they did this in the ancient world when they made a covenant. They split these animals in half and then they walked between the animals. And the message was, if I break my part of the covenant, do to me what has been done to these animals. You know what I'm talking about? And when God did that, when God made His promises to Abraham, they set out the carcasses and then God said to Abraham, hey, you take a nap. And then God, through that burning censer, went through all by himself. What was the point of that? The point of that was, the Abrahamic covenant are promises I'm going to make and I'm going to keep whether you do anything or not. It's very one-sided. Unmediated covenant in that sense. Unconditional. Yes, Abraham was to obey God. But the promises were all of grace and not conditional on his obedience. They were all to be taken by faith. The promises are huge. So the law is relatively pretty small. 
And the law didn't save. You see why the law was added? Did you catch that in verse verse 19? It says it was added because of transgressions. And I think that actually means to increase transgressions. The law was given to show God's people how sinful they really are and how much they needed a Savior. But it itself did not save. Verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Because Paul, you sound like it. You think you, you, the way you're talking about it, like they're like against one another, law and promise, and they're they're banging off of one another. But Paul says, absolutely not. Meganoita. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. The promises are bigger than the law, but they are not antithetical to the law. It's just that the law was never meant to save. The law wasn't strong enough to save because of sin. Verse 22, but the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. There he goes with that faith thing again. He just harps on it. Faith, 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 believe, believe, believe. We saw this point that he's making back in the book of Romans, you might remember. I talked about a plate of brownies. If my wife, Heather, makes me a plate of brownies and then says to me, do not eat the plate of brownies, what do I now want to do really badly? Eat the plate of brownies. And what if I did eat the plate of brownies? Did her law make me a transgressor? Is there something wrong with her law if I broke it? No, there was something wrong with me. And what did her law do? Her law revealed it. It showed me what a glutton I am and what a thief I can be. The Mosaic law did the same thing. It showed the people that they are prisoners of sin and need a spiritual jailbreak. Verse 23. Before this faith in Christ came... We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that put in charge there in verse 23 is literally that the law was a pedagogues or pedagogos, a guardian or a nanny or a governess or a a big bad babysitter or a a, a tutor or a school teacher, but not in the sense of like an educator, but like the, the person who stands at the door and says, you aren't getting out of here, right? The pedagogos was a family slave or an employee that was put in charge of the little kids to keep them out of trouble and to make sure that they made it to adulthood. They were the big bad bodyguards and babysitters that went everywhere with the kids to make sure they made it from being minors to being adults. They had black suits and uh, black sunglasses, right? Big guys, right? Paul says that's what the Mosaic Law was doing. The law was getting God's people from childhood to adulthood, showing them that they needed a Savior. Remember how the law functioned in the books of Kings? It told them whether they were thumbs up or thumbs down kings, right? And how much, what were most of them? Down, right? And going further down. 
How do we know that? The law. The law showed them again and again how thumbs down they were, how much they needed the Savior to come. But now, the Savior has come. Verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So what are we? Here's the good stuff. Verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Why would you want to go back to the law? You see how his logic is working? Is the law a bad thing? No way. No, it's a good thing. It's wonderful. It did its job. But we don't need it as a covenant any longer. It's not in force any longer. It's not our law. And it's certainly not our basis for being right with God. The law did not set aside the promise, verse 17. The law was added because of transgressions, verse 19. The law was temporary. The law couldn't save. The law had us locked up. The law was a big bad babysitter. It did its job. But I don't want a babysitter anymore. Do you? I don't want training wheels anymore. Do you? And I certainly don't want to put my faith in my law keeping. That's just folly in every single way. Because Jesus has come and faith in Jesus changes everything. In the last four verses, Paul tells us about three things that we are because we are in Christ Jesus. And they are glorious. And they are so much better than trying to keep the law. First one, we are sons. We are sons. Verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's an amazing sentence. That's a sentence to memorize. That's a sentence to to repeat to yourself every single day. I am a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I know ladies that that it might be a little difficult to think of yourself as a son. So you can switch in daughter there if it helps as you repeat it in your mind. But don't totally abandon the language either because in this cultural context, the sons were those that inherited from the Father. And it reminds us that we are sons in Christ Jesus who is the Son par excellence. So when God looks at you and me, He sees us in His beloved Son with whom He is well pleased. I see four guys over there that that say, Bob and Eleanor, we are their sons. And you're here to honor them today. And they're looking down the pew and they're saying, there are our sons. And when God looks at us, He looks at us in Christ and He says, they are my sons. Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. God is your Father. God is your Father. God is your Father. Meditate on that. If you are in Christ, then God is your Father. Think about all of what that means for your standing, your acceptance, how God sees you, what God thinks of you, how God feels about you. That's why the Curlins Motorcycle Group has taken that name. Because it's just that amazing. The sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus and you publicly symbolized it by going down into the waters of baptism, identifying yourself with Jesus' death, and coming up out of the waters, identifying yourself with Jesus' resurrection, you were, in effect, putting on Christ Jesus like a new set of clothes. And now God sees you as in that new set of clothes. As in His beloved Son. Think about that. And don't stop thinking about that. Isn't that enough? Isn't that better than the law? We are sons of God. And we are one. In, in Christ Jesus, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So much has changed. Now it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, a, a Gentile. They were saying, oh, it mattered a lot. If you're a Gentile, you've got to become a Jew. No, it doesn't matter. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you're in, circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter your social situation, whether you're on top or at the bottom, whether you're a slave or a free man. And your sex doesn't matter, your gender. Only males could get circumcised. But male or female can trust in Christ and be baptized. These distinctions do not define our salvation. Now, they still exist. These differences don't disappear. This isn't saying there's nobody's a male and nobody's a female or nobody's Jewish and nobody's a, a Greek or nobody's a slave man or nobody's a free man. Those things still exist, but they are not ultimate. They don't determine our worth or our value before God. They, they have nothing to do with our salvation and they don't keep us from being united to one another. He says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Let me add to this. American or Mexican, black or white, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we ought to act like it. We should never allow ourselves to think of ourselves as better than any other Christian. Certainly not based on our race. And we should do everything we can to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because we are one. Not on our own but in Christ Jesus. And law-keeping certainly didn't do that. We are sons. We are one in the Son. And because of that, we are heirs. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I just love that. In verse 16, Paul made it clear that the seed of Abraham was ultimately Jesus Christ, right? And then what does he say in verse 29? He says, we are the seed of Abraham in Him. 
If we belong to Christ by faith, then we are in Abraham's seed and are Abraham's seed. Father Abraham is our father because we are in Christ. And that means, get this, get, get this, that we inherit every one of the promises that God made to Abraham. Did you know that? Did you know that you are in for all kinds of blessings guaranteed to come your way for all of eternity, not because of anything you have ever earned or done, but just because you belong to Jesus? That's a big word. Heirs. Heirs. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, right? We sang that a couple weeks ago. The spiritual offspring of Abraham because we are in Christ Jesus. Heirs according to the promise. It doesn't get better than that, friends. The application, I hope, is obvious. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and don't add law-keeping to the basis of your justification. If you haven't put your faith in Christ Jesus, why not? Look what you're missing. Sons of God, one in the Son, heirs according to the promise. Why would you want to miss out on that? And why would you want to add works of the law to deal, to the deal, when the law has already done its job and there are promises to take hold of by faith? If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then revel in it. Meditate on these words. Take these words with you. Sons, one, heirs. Sons, one, heirs. Sons, one, heirs. Every day, center your life on Christ Jesus because that's where the blessing is. If you have Christ, then you have If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And what do we know? God always keeps His promises. Let's pray together. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I have to ask this question. Have you clothed yourself with Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And Him alone, not in your obedience to the works of the law, not in being a good person, not in being a church person or living an upstanding, moral, clean life. But have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross and that alone? If you have, you have everything. If you have not, why not? And why not now? Lord Jesus, please draw to Yourself those who do not know You. That they would put their faith in You. All of their faith in You and You alone and what You did for them at the cross. Trusting not in their law-keeping, but in the righteousness that is a gift from Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. Our sin on Him. His righteousness on us in the great exchange. Would you do that, Lord, in somebody's heart even right now? That they would step into believing the promises 
and that the promises are theirs. Not because of themselves, but because of Jesus. And I pray, Father, for all of us that are in Christ, that we would revel in it. That we would let these words echo through our souls. Sons, one, heirs. Would you do that? That's where the victory lies. In faith in Christ Jesus. So we pray it in his name. Amen.